What I'd like to do is open up with a couple scriptures as we do for our study. We're studying tonight chapter 21 of the Confession of Faith of Religious Worship in the Sabbath Day. I do want to mention that we're probably going to take four weeks on this. Uh, I will try to be mindful of the time and allow this to spill over to next week if it seems like we need to. And Mr. Renner, if you need more time, no problem, I'll adjust. But if you might be willing to be ready next week for your testimony on the Sabbath. Okay. Uh, so uh, probably next week we'll call on you. Um, well, either way, if I finish the study tonight, we'll have you go next week. And if you need more time, no problem. But I'll probably spill over this study kind of a part two with just a little bit. We'll have Mr. Renner's uh, testimony about keeping the Sabbath as he became a Christian with his family. And then the third week, I'll start the study of the special handout that I've given you. I also sent you a link to a Sabbath class we had years ago that got into a lot more detail about singing without instruments and singing the Psalms exclusively. So I think I am going to make use of this study that's going online on Sermon Audio to get into those details a little more so it's available and it's out there because I really haven't ever provided that from us as a resource in terms of our audio messages. So uh, I think we're going to need four weeks for this, but I think as we consider uh, Sabbath worship, it's, it's worthy of that kind of attention. Um, and again, when we have some distinctions that didn't used to be distinctions, but now they are as the church has evolved, so to speak, I wouldn't want to say matured, broadly speaking, uh, I like to give a little extra attention to a few things that we still stand for that a lot of people don't tend to understand. Um, Okay, but before we do, what I'd like to do is sing with you on page 203 of our Psalter, Psalm 92, just verses 1 and 2. So page 203, Psalm 92, and I want you to notice this, the title of the psalm. This is, this is original, it's in the Hebrew text, so it's not, a, a, it's not a title that's been added, it's part of the original Bible in the Hebrew. It says, a psalm or song for the Sabbath day. If you look back to Psalm 90, I believe, it says a prayer of Moses, the man of God. That's unusual to see a psalm by Moses. But sometimes we'll have titles like that or titles that are clearly by David, could be by other people. But a lot of times it'll explain even the context for David, like Psalm 51, I think it is. Um, So Psalm 92, we have a special title. This is a psalm for the Sabbath day. And I think that's pretty significant for uh, what we'll consider tonight. So I'd like to sing only verses 1 and 2 for sake of time. And I'd like to highlight verse 2, okay? So let's sing together. Da, 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 da. To render thanks unto the Lord, it is a comely thing. And to thy name, O thou most high, do praise aloud to sing. Thy loving kindness to show forth when shines the morning light. And to declare thy faithfulness with pleasure every night. We'll stop there. I want you to see that last line. This is a psalm for the Sabbath, and it speaks of a morning offering 
and it speaks of an evening offering. It bookends the day. That's very much connected to the way that uh, worship would be in the tabernacle later at the temple. There would be a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice. Very standard expectation for the people of God. And in this case, it says a psalm for the Sabbath day. So we'll look at uh, the relevance of a little bit related to that as we continue with our study. Okay. Now, I want to ask you... Thanks for your patience as I get organized here. Thinking of the recent sermon, actually. <laughs> um, I want to look at two other Bible verses with you just to set up our study. Okay, I, I like, I'm not going through all the Bible proof text, uh, reference text that the confession gives us for sake of time. I'll touch on a few. Uh, but what I want to turn to first is Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. Kind of want to see if I still have it memorized, but I, I want to look at it to play it safe. It's interesting that as I looked at Thomas Watson in the Ten Commandments, as he comments on the fourth commandment, keeping the Sabbath, he actually turns to this text and he teaches through each verse to close his section on the fourth commandment. Um, I'm not going to be giving you much from that, but I thought that was interesting because we've often talked about this as, I think, a particularly important verse about keeping the Sabbath and about what not to do on his holy day, but also the blessing and promise if we do what he wants. Verse 13, Isaiah 58 13 and 14. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words. Then shalt thou delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. So we're looking at religious worship and the Lord's day, the Sabbath day. It really all goes together. Uh, the Sabbath day is for religious worship, right? That's what it's made for by God. But as we see here, this particular scripture says, if you don't do what you want to do on my holy day, and instead you, and you don't treat the Sabbath like it's a burden, but a great blessing, and you delight in it, then I will make you delight in me. So delighting in the Lord's day is the big way that we delight in the Lord. And then he says, and I will bless you in special ways. Thomas Watson talks a lot about all those blessings. Also curses if we won't, but blessings if we do. I want you to turn with me also, please, to Hebrews chapter 10, a verse we often reference together. Bears repeating. Hebrews chapter 10, and I'd like to look with you. Um, sorry, I wrote my notes here. I know what it is, but uh, 23 to 25. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. As the day is approaching sooner and sooner that the Lord will return, we're called to hold our profession together. But that's a public profession, of course, right? When we say professing Christians, professing Christians profess together in church and in worship, in covenant. Let us hold our profession together corporately. 
Let us consider how we provoke one another to love and good works. That's a corporate thing. That's fellowship. We neglect time together as God's people, especially on the holy day. That has an effect on us where we're not as likely to do good works, but we're to gather together. And then notice on verse 25, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves. By the way, what is uh, the Greek word ekklesia and the Hebrew word kahal? Those two words mean the same thing in English for church, the word church, the called out ones. But it isn't just the called out ones. It's the called out ones unto one another, the assembly. A lot of times we'll refer to it as the assembly. Okay, so Kahal and Ecclesia have the idea of assembly, church. So it's the gathering together of God's people to worship him in corporate covenant worship. And that is on the day he has prescribed to focus on that, his holy day, the Sabbath, now the Christian Sabbath. Okay, well, I'm going to turn to the notes now. Let me just open my folder if you'd like to join me as we look at an explanation of the confession of faith. And it is going to be chapter 21 of Religious Worship and the Sabbath Day. Because I'm prepared to spill over into next week with Mr. Renner's uh, uh, testimony, uh, unless, brother, you think you need the entire class or you don't. Th- okay. Uh, I want to encourage you to take your time with it, though. I love hearing the story. Uh, I will go ahead and read uh, the confessions sections. I won't read the scriptures, but I'll read each section before I explain So we're talking about religious worship and the Sabbath day. So section one of chapter 21, page 137. The light of nature showeth that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is good and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and with all the soul, and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping him, excuse me, acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself, and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So uh, God is to be praised, and even in the light of nature, we know that. We know that. Everyone really knows that God should be praised. But God should be praised only the way that he says he wants to be praised. And uh, we'll look at this a little bit. But let's look at uh, just the beginning of my explanation. What is worship? What is worship? That's something we should define first. Let's not assume the wrong thing. And I, I give you a couple of quotes to talk about it. Worship is a response to God in the context of the covenant. That's from Roland Ward. I think that's a good, discuss, good definition. Worship is a response to God in the context of the covenant. It is responding to God in his grace. It's responding to God and making us his covenant people. It's responding to him in the blood of the everlasting covenant. We are reflecting and saying thank you and we're turning to him and asking him to help us do his will and live for him and preserve us until the end. It's in the context of the covenant. Now remember chapter seven is about the covenant. That's so significant. We remember that's pretty much what organizes understanding the whole Bible. And as I mentioned, the last of four article series based on this class just ran tonight on Meet the Puritans with Reformation 21, so I'll send you those links. Why do we worship? 
We worship uh, the, oh no, yeah, why do we worship? We worship the existence, lordship, sovereignty, and goodness of God as creator and redeemer. Giving you that from Wayne Spear, my professor from seminary. He used to be a minister out here. Uh, W. Raglan knew him. So it's worshiping his existence, his lordship, his sovereignty, and his goodness as creator and redeemer. So letter A. Now I'm going to give you some distinctions, uh, some, draw some things out of this first section. The light of nature leads us to know we should worship God. Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless till they find rest in thee. I think that could be a nice witnessing tract, actually. And I, I always think of uh, Mr. Raglan when we had our radio program, part of our introduction, if it wasn't the conclusion, was uh, Mr. Raglan quoting that, quoting that. We don't have any rest until we find our rest in God. We don't have any real rest until we're willing to find our rest in God on his holy day of rest, anticipating the final day of rest. Blaise Pascal said, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus. We're made by God, and none of us can really be ever satisfied or happy until God has brought us into relationship with him through Christ. There's this void. There's this vacancy that needs to be filled by God. And the problem is the world tries to fill it with everything but God. Uh, we can't even love others properly unless God's love is in us through Christ. But such recognition that God needs to be worshipped, you know, there's just this instinct in us to worship, it leads us to false religion, outside divine revelation where God gives his directions. As John Calvin has said, we are all, our hearts are idol factories. All of our hearts are idol factories. We just have, because we've been made to worship God, but because of the fall, we have that sense and we know we should be worshipping God, but we often make idols and we worship them. And it needs to be directed by the Holy Spirit. It needs to be directed by the Bible. So letter B, worship of God must be done in the way he expressly said he wants to be worshipped in the Bible. Not according to men's, quote the confession, imaginations and devices. This is called the regulative principle of worship. And I would take you to footnote 373 to highlight uh, an explanation from John Lafayette Gerardot's, a very important book on instruments. A divine warrant is necessary for every element of doctrine, government, and worship in the church. That is, whatsoever in these spheres is not commanded in the scriptures, either expressly or by good and necessary consequence from their statements, is forbidden. That's the Reformed view of worship. If God has not explicitly commanded it, or it is not logically deduced, it's forbidden. God has to tell us what he wants us to do. Now, we studied this related to our study of the Puritans just this Lord's Day. Let me review a few things. Um, we can't just come up with our own ideas. As I've heard, a guy came down, I don't know if it was the pastor or someone else, dribbling a basketball down the aisle uh, as part of a worship service. I don't know why. It's probably some illustration. We can't uh, say, oh, because I have uh, the gifts of quilting that I want to be making quilts in worship and waving them around. Or, you know, we don't just say, I got all these ideas that I want to bring into the worship service to show my talents, which frankly isn't about God, but it's about, look at me, really, right? Um, we don't come to worship and make up things we want to do. I have heard how people have changed the elements of the Lord's Supper to cookies and, grape, or cookies and Kool-Aid, for instance. 
Why not hamburgers and Coke, right? Because that's not what God has told us to do. And there is meaning in what he has prescribed for worship and in the method of worship. Now, as you look at uh, the next part of that footnote 373, I'm not going to read through it, but what it's reminding us that at the time of the Puritans uh, with Queen Elizabeth and others of the Anglican church, they kind of came out with an almost anti-Puritan, if I understand it correctly, kind of a explanation of sports that are okay to do on the Sabbath. And it was kind of a booklet that just said, hey, there's all kinds of stuff you can do on the Sabbath. So it's in that context that this Westminster Standard is related, and I think alluding to some of those things and addressing them. Okay, so no, you can't just go out and do whatever you want. Um, but uh, back to the notes here, uh, middle of the first paragraph, page 137. Notice, oh no, excuse me, I'm uh, letter B. This is called, again, the regulative principle of worship. Now, before I continue, no, no, I won't. It's in my notes. I'll get off track here. (laughs) Notice that the first four commandments all essentially express this principle. The first four commandments are all essentially the regulative principle of worship. No idols. Don't make anything to worship me. Honor the Sabbath day, which is the focus today, right? Don't use my name in vain. Approach me with reverence. They're all the regulative principle. Don't just approach God any way you want to. Boy, does the broad church and a lot of Reformed churches need to be reminded of that. Do not just approach God any way you want. Approach God the way he wants to be approached. See Leviticus 10, verses 1 to 7, to review what happened when priests offered unprescribed fire to God in worship. What happened? Who are we talking about there? Anybody remember the names? Nadab and Abihu. Very good. What did they do? They had strange fire. They just offered up kind of, I think, on a censer, some kind of fire that God did not tell them to offer up. And what happened to them? Seems innocent enough, right? Oh, I just got this idea. I'm just going to offer up some strange fire. What did God do? He burned them up in fire. I believe it came from heaven. He devoured them in fire for offering up something he had not commanded. Uh, when we go to Acts chapter 5, I believe it is, Ananias and Sapphira, the Holy Spirit kills them both and drags them out by the feet. Why? Because they lied in worship. In both cases, the foundation of Old and now New Testament church, God wants to really emphasize approaching him with reverence and honesty through Christ and truth in worship. Now, I, I have, what's that? The moving of the ark. The moving of the ark, right. Don't touch the ark. Uh, why did, uh, I'm forgetting, uh, well, I'm forgetting the name of the fellow. Do you remember that was struck by it? They were moving the ark. Yeah, there's a certain man that touched it. I'm drawing a blank here. He touched the ark, and the problem was they were not carrying it according to the way that God prescribed. Very good. They were supposed to have the staves through the rings and carrying it. They were not to touch it. And not only that, only, I think it was the Korahites. Am I saying that right? The Kahathites. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going really rough here, but... Only a certain group of the priests were even allowed to carry it. And David was so grieved over it, but then he did recognize we're not doing it the way God prescribed. And yeah, he died as well. So if we think that we can be careless and cavalier about how we do things for God, especially related to worship, we should be really concerned. I'm not trying to say that he'll do some of these amazing redemptive historical things, but I think he still does Show us to be careful. It's interesting. Thomas Watson, he shares about how Britain is getting so bad with how they approach worship and dishonor the Sabbath day. And uh, he talks about many examples of people dying, even in worship. Well, 1 Corinthians 11 says, if you don't approach the Lord's Supper right, that's why some of you are dying, right? 
God will have us do things his way, which is significant about why we have fencing of the table, but we'll, we'll save that for the chapter on the Lord's Supper. Thank you, Mr. Renner. Back to the notes. You see what I have bold, italicized, and underlined. Here's a big principle of worship that most of us have backwards. Worship is for who? God. And who is it not for? Us. We are not the object of worship. We do not decide what we do because it's not for us. We honor God by the way he desires. For instance, as an illustration, here's my famous illustration. Fernanda, what kind of birthday cake do I like for my birthday? Lemon cake with what? Lemon icing. Do I want anything else on it? Okay. And my first time I have my birthday, it's always neat to think about I went to Boston. I said, hey, it's actually going to be my birthday when I'm visiting you for the first time. Do you mind if we get lemon cake? And she took it so serious. I think this is actually a great illustration to make the point. She took so seriously uh, what I wanted that she was so anxious about it, uh, especially because Olivia had given her a special recipe and she was so nervous about it. And, um, you know, we ended, to get, ended up getting very nice lemon cake out, out in a box, you know, uh, but she was very nervous, uh, very, very nervous about it. But Why? Because here I am coming to get to know her, possibly get married. And of course, not long after we did, I tricked her to come back out to San Diego. And, um, and she didn't use her return ticket. But, uh, you know, she's taking me seriously. So she wants to honor me on my birthday, right? So back to the notes. I want lemon cake with lemon icing on my birthday. Why? I don't know why. One time my mother must have done that for me and it's stuck. And I like it and I prefer it. Uh, My wife and children want to honor me on my birthday, so they do not make chocolate cake with colored sprinkles, nor do they include unprescribed coconut. By the way, I like coconut, but I don't want it in my cake for my birthday. I don't know why. I just don't. And uh, I don't want it in the cake batter. It's my birthday. Don't I have a right to have one? Fernando, what do you like on your birthday for cake? Yeah, but think a little more specific. Northgate, right? She's become, her thing is she loves, what kind of cake do you like, Gabriel? Dino. Dino cake, yeah. But we often get the Trace Leches cake from Northgate because she just loves it. But she does not want the normal cream in there. She wants the whipped cream with fresh strawberries. And she's always like, make sure you get that right. I did. I Did you make sure she wrote it down? Yes, honey, we got it. Why did I make a point to that? Because it's her birthday. I don't try to force lemon cake with lemon icing on her. What does Mr. Maxwell want on his birthday? German chocolate cake. And I think that does include coconut. And so his wife, Irma, always makes it for him according to his mother's uh, old recipe. See, why? Because it's his birthday. That's the point, right? The Lord's day is whose day? The Lord's day. day. So we offer what he wants in worship. This is the regulative principle of worship. We keep in mind what the Confession of Faith, chapter 1, 6 notes as the difference between worship circumstances, light bulbs, microphones, location, with elements, Bible reading, preaching, sacraments, prayer, singing psalms. We'll get into the elements more. You want to flip over with me to page 138. But there's a difference between circumstances and elements. Elements of worship have to be what God commands. But... uh, I think he does recognize if we can't see, that will hinder our worship. So we're allowed to have lights, right? Or if we were a different generation, we would be allowed to have candles. But what would the candles be for solely as a circumstance, not an element of worship? To read. To read, yeah. Not 
to light for, for the ecclesiastical calendar, Advent, or all these things, then it's an element of worship. Then it's something forced into worship as some religious element. But if it's just so we can see, or I'm using a microphone so you can hear properly, that's just a circumstance. It's not an element. The elements are things like the singing of the Psalms, preaching of the word, reading, prayer, okay? Uh, top of page 138, letter C. I do not know why I have this long blank space, by the way. I can never figure out how to fix that, so half the page is empty. But letter C, page 138. Why do we sing psalms a cappella? Well, the, the first answer is the regulative principle of worship. Okay, but let me expand on it. Uh, by the way, what I'm going to sh- share with you now is what I'm going to teach you over two weeks with a Sabbath class booklet we put together years ago. So I'm going to get into a lot more details on this than I will tonight. There'll be a little bit of overlap, but I'm going to teach you a lot more on this in coming weeks as a supplement. Why do we sing psalms a cappella? What does a cappella mean? Without instruments. Yeah. Actually, you know what it literally means? I'll teach you soon. It means like the church, because the church never used to sing with instruments. So a cappella means like the church. Okay, Why do we sing Psalms a cappella? First, note that paragraph 5 in this uh, chapter only speaks of singing what? Psalms. It doesn't list anything else that we would sing but psalms. As we are speaking within a confessional context, that's pretty important for a lot of our brethren that would neglect that observation and also include other things. It only speaks of psalms. That's important. Let me continue. The church has done this for almost her entire history. And when I say almost, it's changed recently. It started this way. The Reformation said we need to go back to it. Okay. The Old Testament ceremonial laws have been fulfilled in Christ. So things like incense, sacrifices, priestly vestments, and instruments that were all part of the typological sacrificial system are done away. Okay, so would you guys like it if I slaughtered an animal for worship? That's done, right? Am I supposed to be doing incense like the Catholic Church in worship anymore? No. You notice how much the Catholic Church mimics the Old Testament uh, temple. Why? Because they're still trying to be the priests instead of Jesus being the priest, right? So you don't want me to be doing incense in here, right? I'm pretty sure, Fernanda, if you came here and we were throwing incense around, you probably wouldn't have married me, right? Okay. So there's a lot of things we don't do anymore because it was part of the sacramental system. Instruments was part of the sacramental system. I'm going to bear that out a lot in the next coming weeks. They're part of what pointed to Christ. We sing the Psalms still because that is the hymnal that God gave us in the Bible to sing to him. And they are full of Christ. Psalm 2, 16, 22, 40, 45, 110 especially. What's the number one quoted Old Testament scripture in the New Testament about Jesus? I mean, at all, but it's about Jesus. Psalm 110, verse 4. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Referencing Genesis 14, which the writer of the Hebrews, I think correct is to say is Paul, uh, he, he const- constantly quotes Psalm 110, 4. So the Psalms are all about Jesus. What did Jesus say in Luke 24, 44? The law of Moses and the prophets, but what else all speak of me? The Psalms, right? Okay, we sing the things that speak of the Old Testament sacrificial system in the Psalms, such as instruments. By the way, Psalm 92, if we continue, it mentions instruments. 
But now we sing it with the view that they have been fulfilled in Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, which the instruments typified. So sometimes the Psalms speak of animal sacrifices, but we understand they are typological, so we don't think we have to do that anymore. Similar with instruments. Now, Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians 5.19 say to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So does that mean we can come up with all kinds of different things? No, because when he is referring to psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, he is referring to the Psalter of the Old Testament. He is speaking paraphrastically, uh, talking about singing the psalms which we call the Psalter. Each of those words, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, are titles in the Psalms. They're referring to sections of the Psalms found in the Old Testament Psalter. Quote, it will be observed that those words being, uh, being, excuse me, that the confession does not acknowledge the legitimacy of the use of modern hymns in the worship of God. Again, see section five below. It only refers to Psalms, but rather only the Psalms of the Old Testament. Now, that's G.I. Williamson. That's a pretty big, heavy hitter. And he's saying it'll be observed that uh, our confession doesn't speak of anything as legitimate to sing except for the Psalms. Uh, Paul never had amazing grace or opened the eyes of my heart in mind. He didn't have a pipe organ or a praise team in mind when he's saying these things. We have to not read into what we want him to say. His referent is not often our reference. Paul didn't have those things in mind. We must not be guilty of anachronism in our understanding of biblical worship. What's anachronism? Anybody know what anachronism is? It's the danger of reading back into something what we think is there, which they are not talking about. It's saying, oh, spiritual songs. That means open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Hymns. Oh, that means amazing grace. No, those things didn't exist. And they did not use instruments in the New Testament worship. He's not referring to those things. He's referring to the three terms of titles of the Psalms. Okay? The Psalms are the most quoted Old Testament references in the New Testament. God-inspired spiritual songs of worship. Notice, by the way, spiritual songs... I think I mentioned it here, but do you know what that means in the Greek? What it literally means, spiritual songs, it means written by the Holy Spirit. I don't think any of us want to say that. Oh, I came up with this song. No, it doesn't mean like I felt inspired. It means literally inspired as the word of God. It's only written by the Holy Spirit. And it's referring to those three things as the Psalter. Okay. What is the thing that the Psalms say to do more than anything else, by the way? What do they often open with? Like, what do we sing in Psalm 100 tonight? Sing, 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 sing. It's always telling us to sing and praise the Lord. That's what they're for, okay? The Psalms, uh, excuse me, the first book printed in America was the Bass Altar in 1640. Uh, but uh, uh, let me see here, I think, I, oh no, yeah, okay. The, the Psalms are the most quoted Old Testament reference in the New Testament, more than Isaiah, more than anything else. Calvin produced the Geneva Psalter. I'm getting back in order here. The reformers always said, we're not singing those man-made songs anymore. We're only singing songs written by the Holy Spirit in the collected book of singing called the Psalms in the Bible. You know what convinced me about this? I was in Savannah, Georgia years ago, representing the seminary, but not yet convicted of what my seminary stood for on this. And I went to a little Sabbath class on the side with Terry Johnson, who has provided a Psalter for the PCA, by the way. It's been there 30-something years. And uh, he was explaining, we were talking about the five solas of the Reformation. One of the uh, solas of the Reformation is what? Sola Scriptura, which means what? God's word, scripture alone. 
And the reformer said, oh, yeah, scripture alone. So we should only be reading and preaching the scripture, not all these other things. We should be praying the scripture. We should be teaching the scripture. We should be singing the scripture. Sola Scriptura. Oh, look, there's a songbook that God wrote in the scriptures, the Psalms. Okay. Um, I'm going to give you a lot more about this in the coming weeks. Um, uh, The first book printed in America was a Psalter. In 1640, the Bay Psalter, I believe it was Boston. The first, you like that, Fernanda? Boston again. <laughs> the very first thing they printed in America was the Psalter, because that's what the church used. The Westminster Assembly produced a metrical Psalter only with the 150 Psalms, and it was later revised in Scotland and became the Scottish Psalter of 1650. And that's what we have. Our comprehensive Psalter, our red Psalter, is the original Scottish Psalter of 1650. It's just been repackaged by Dr. Richard Bacon, our friend. It's now owned by uh, our denomination, and it's just basically they've picked tunes and music to go with the specific Psalms, okay? Uh, but it is the Scottish Psalter. Van Dixhorn, Chad Van Dixhorn recognizes that, quote, the assembly's commitment to the uh, Psalter in worship is amply evidenced in the enormous amount of time that its members invested in revising and proofreading a new edition of the Psalter. So the assembly that gave us the confession and the standards and all these things, the catechisms, they also had a new Psalter devised, a lot of time revising it, editing it. The assembly's Psalter included no hymns, and its directory for public worship commended psalm singing. That's Chad Van Dixhorn. Their directory of worship did not reference hymns and only commended psalm singing. And that is not an accident. Okay, That is an understanding. Also, quote, making melody in our hearts, said in Ephesians 5.19, is literally in the Greek to pluck or twang. So when it says make melody in your hearts to the Lord, it's actually literally in the Greek to pluck a stringed instrument. So our hearts are beating the instruments of worship and all the instruments in the Old Testament. I'll get into more how we see that they stop after the sacrifice is done. In the Old Testament, they stop. Our hearts now, because of the sacrifice of Christ, are the instrument of the Holy Spirit. And frankly, if they aren't, then it doesn't matter what other instrument might be played. Especially they shouldn't be because God doesn't want them anymore. They were for the sacrificial system. But what matters most is that our hearts are plucking praise to God. That's what they typified in the Old Testament, okay? Uh, and that's what it says in Ephesians 5, 19. Let the instruments of your heart pluck strings worshiping God. The instruments of the joy of the Holy Ghost are now on our hearts, which the Old Testament instruments represented. See how the use of priestly instruments stop after the sacrifice is completed in 2 Chronicles 29, 20 to 30. If you go and read that text, you will see that they are making an animal sacrifice and playing the instruments, And when they stop the animal sacrifice, there's no more instruments with the singing. I think it's often particularly probably related to the fact that, uh, you know, those animals were probably not making very pleasant noises, were they? Might have helped drown it out. That's probably not the only reason. But what we recognize is they did not sing with instruments once the animal sacrifice was done. It was clearly related to the sacrifice of the animal. And we no longer sacrifice animals you know, even more, you could say, I don't think we can argue they had organs or guitars or drums. They didn't have any of that stuff, those kinds of things we might think of. You can see things that sound like those things, but it was nothing like we think of today, often anachronistically. We read into things that they are not talking about. See also 
the enclosed article by J.G. Voss quoting John Calvin on the use of instruments in Old Testament worship as no longer to be done in New Testament worship. So I have a lot of inserts I'm handing out to you today. There's one of them, J.G. Voss explaining John Calvin saying why instruments should not be in worship anymore. By the way, I have a number of other articles explaining uh, singing psalms only, and uh, I'm going to point to those at the end. Charles Spurgeon. You know who Charles Spurgeon is? Anybody ever hear of him? <laughs> kind of a big shot, so to speak, right? He wouldn't say that of himself, but Charles Spurgeon, the Reformed Baptist preacher in London. Now, he wasn't with us on Psalms only, but he did not believe you should be using instruments. They didn't use instruments. These big metropolitan churches are there, right? These huge churches, tons of people, no instruments. Well, actually, they did have instruments, thousands of instruments. What were they? The hearts and the mouths of the people. Okay. Uh, by the way, one of the things I couldn't stand, once I got away from being in churches that uses instruments, by the way, I used to get paid to lead worship with instruments, so I'll talk about that later. You know, I found I couldn't stand being in churches with organs. I could never hear the people. I could never hear the voices of my brethren. Drowned out. But were the instruments as a praise? Okay, back to the notes. Uh, so yeah, Charles, Charles Spurgeon agreed. It was the Roman Catholic Church that began the use of instruments in worship in the late 600s AD. The Roman Catholic Church, like bringing so many other things that don't belong. And when the Reformation came, they said, no more of that Roman Catholic Church thing. We're not using instruments anymore. They brought that into worship. It was never part of worship, but the Roman Catholic Church brought it in again. Why? Because the Roman Catholic Church is trying to be the Old Testament sacrificial system. Right? We should learn music and practice to sing our best, by the way. Let's not excuse ourselves. We should sometimes uh, churches that sing a cappella psalmody, they'll often have Sabbath classes people can come to and learn how to sing music. That's a good idea. We ought to think about that. Uh, but gorgeous singing not done God's way is not accepted, however impressive it is to men. And the opposite's also true. I love how it says in Psalm 100, make a joyful what? Noise. Noise to the Lord. That doesn't mean to be annoying. That doesn't mean try to sing nice. But not everybody can sing well. But it's about a joyful noise to the Lord. And he likes that. And he doesn't like people who sing beautifully but don't sing in faith. But what's the main thing emphasized in a lot of churches? Oh, what a voice. Put that person up front. Yeah. But you know what? I rem- I'll remind you of what I shared with you this, this Lord's Day because we were on this topic with the Puritans. I, I remember that uh, in a church I was in, a PCUSA church, pretty liberal Presbyterian, we kept growing out of it. But we were part of bringing in a praise team there that they wanted. And we actually had a lady in her 70s playing upright stand-up bass with us, actually. It's pretty cool. If you're going to, you know, it was kind of neat. We had a little cross-gender. But remember, I told you, the choir director told me I cannot sing hallelujah with a church song that we chose at the time. Not a song. Uh, I wasn't aware of these things yet. We can't sing hallelujah during the, until we get to Easter. We were in uh, Lenten season. Why? Because Christ hasn't been resurrected yet. Uh, I'm pretty sure he's been resurrected already. Why was she emphasizing that? Because she was a Roman Catholic. Why was she leading our choir? Because they were paying her to do so because she was formally trained in music. What is she doing leading a Protestant worship service telling us we can't sing hallelujah? It's all related to the Roman Catholic Church bringing back the temple services. And I tell you again, we had the, they used to love to brag, this big old Presbyterian church, we had the best organist in all of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. They love to brag about this guy. No one offend this guy. Paid him a lot of money. He wasn't a believer. 
Why are we doing this? And I remember one time when we got together with, you know, in the back to pray before leading worship. And uh, his wife came in to do a special song. And you know what she talked about before she went out there, before we had prayer? I need a martini. What? You know, that's not praising the Lord. Now, you could argue that doesn't prove against it if somebody's doing those things with the right heart. But the point is, just because it's professional. Oh, praise teams, a lot of professional, big, huge churches are hiring people that are not believers. But they know how to wail on the guitar, baby. But they're not offering praise from their hearts. Yes, Abraham. Yeah, now I would say that if someone's leading worship, they ought to be able to hold a tune, <laughs> you know, the presenters uh, in the Jewish church especially. But, but yeah, you have to pray. I'm not saying that it's wrong to be skilled, but what I'm saying is just because people might be terribly skilled doesn't mean that there's worship happening from their hearts, right? And then it's not... But then even more so, we have to be concerned we're giving the Lord what he wants. But it does have to be from our hearts. Uh, keep in mind, the reformers were fond of playing instruments elsewhere for entertainment. I think, uh, was it uh, Ulrich Zwingli? I think he played like seven instruments. I think they called him the Pied Piper. He'd actually go around playing his instruments to try to attract the youth. But he would not have it in worship. Most of the reformers, a lot of the Scots, they'd get together and play all the different instruments, you know, stuff that I think influences our, our uh, music in the mountains and the East Coast, you know, <laughs> but they weren't going to put it in worship. We have a distinction between worship and entertainment. That's a distinction that is completely blurred now for the modern church. I think it's okay to have Christian music. I think it's okay to have secular music. It has to be appropriate for Christian to listen to and enjoy, but... We, make a, we don't make a proper distinction between, Christian, uh, between worship and just entertainment. Notice also that we are not allowed to use visible representations of Jesus in worship. The confession here guides us to focus on what is called purity of worship. Before we continue, in footnote 376, I'm not going to read through this, but halfway down, there's a note about Matthew Windsor. He has an article called Westminster and Worship Examined, a review of Nick Needham's essay uh, that was teaching uh, the regulative principle and that they didn't just teach Psalms. It's a, I'm not going to get into that, but you can see the closing of his argument. He has a very good article that proves the Westminster Confession is speaking only of singing Psalms. Nothing else is allowed. Okay? He's got a very, very good article to prove that. Okay? But I'm not going to read it for you now for sake of time. We're talking about purity of worship, only offering up what God wants through Christ. Okay, page 140. I'm going to try to keep moving along here, but remind me that I'm going to spill over next week, and Mr. Renner will take it up. However, I want to set him up to have a lot of time, so I'm going to try to move along here. Top of page 140. Sorry, I got a little preachy. (laughs) Section 2 of chapter 21. Top of page 140. Religious worship is to be given to God, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and to him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creature, and since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but of Christ alone. Worship is to be only to the triune God. Notice they do note the Trinity there. Uh, That goes back to early chapters, right? Chapter 2. God and the Trinity. Uh, But it's only to be offered up to God. We're going to get more into this now. But notice, not to angels, not to saints. You know, they're dealing a lot with the Roman Catholic Church, right? We do not offer up prayers to Mary. We do not offer up prayers to different quote-unquote saints. There is no mediator between God and men except whom? Chapter 8 of the Confession. The man Christ Jesus. 
No one else can be an, an intercessory. Uh, we don't pray to Mary to ask us to talk to Jesus for us. We talk to God through Jesus, right? Okay, now let me explain this. Praying to saints shows an innate sense of needing a mediator, but only Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and men. Not only may we not pray to saints, quote, the invocation of the saints is a pure absurdity, for unless they are omnipresent and omniscient, they cannot hear us. And in many cases, unless they are omnipotent, they cannot help us. That's a great quote by A.A. A. Hodge in his confession commentary. By the way, Fernanda, your, conf- your commentary confession in Portuguese, that's A.A. A. Hodge I'm quoting right now. You have it in Portuguese there. Um, they can't even hear us. It's so stupid. It's absurd to pray to the saints. They can't hear us. They're not God. They don't have the qualities of God to even hear us, let alone it's sacrilege, but they can't even do anything and they can't even hear it. It's like, you might as well talk to the wall. (laughs) It's going to be just as effective. Talk to God through Christ alone. Amen? Amen? All right. Okay. Roland Ward explains how the Roman Catholic Church tries to justify venerating, quote, the saints by making arbitrary distinctions of Latria, worship to God alone, Hyperdulia, worship to the Virgin Mary, and Dulia, worship due to the saints and martyrs. Quote, however, worship of the saints involves belief that they are not just holy examples for our faith, but actual agents with a religious role of interceding powerfully for us and aiding us through their merits. And so is not merely a weakness of the simple, but is highly offensive to the character of Christ as the only mediator. Uh, That is uh, also Roland Ward. Section three of the confession. Prayer with thanksgiving being one special part of religious worship is by God required of all men and that it may be accepted. It is to be made in the name of the son by the help of his spirit, according to his will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love and perseverance. And if vocal in a known tongue. So let me explain. Bottom of page 140. Prayer is talking to God. It is human language that is addressed to God. That's uh, Dr. Spear. Prayer is, quote, fellowship with himself. That's Packer. J.I. Packer. Uh, Prayer is to be private and public and without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Prayer is how you do not faint in this world. Luke 18, verse 1. Why pray in Jesus' name? Prayer in Christ's name is much more than habitually ending our prayers with some mention of him. It means responding in our whole being to the truth that comes to fullness of revelation in him, participating in the new life that comes from him and submitting to his authority and teaching. See also Westminster Larger Catechism 180 about praying in Christ's name. Prayer that comes, I want you to see that, by the way, our catechisms uh, fill in a lot of these details. Why should we pray in Jesus' name? Is it okay? A lot of different things about prayer. Uh, our catechisms deal with these things. Our, our confessions and our catechisms are very thorough, help us with a lot of the, the main questions of Christianity. Something I hope to impress upon us as we continue. Prayer is by the Spirit, for He is the one sent by Christ to speak to our spirits that we are the sons of God and to pray for us when we don't know what to say. Romans 8, isn't that always a wonderful scripture? 
The, the Holy Spirit prays for us when we don't have words, with groans. You ever pray to God by groaning? You have no words? That's still prayer. And God, the Holy Spirit, brings it up to God the Father, and he understands and accepts it. It's amazing, through God, uh, Jesus Christ. Packer notes, the mysterious reality of the Holy Spirit's help in prayer becomes known only to those who actually pray. When we pray, we, we experience the Holy Spirit praying through us. And it, it testifies, Romans 8, that we are the children of God because the Holy Spirit does that. If public prayer is to be, known, be in a known tongue, one, tongues have ceased after the apostolic dispensation. And two, it must not be forced to be in Latin, as has long been the case of the Roman Catholic Church, and thus not to be understood by the people. They're particularly concerned about that. During this time, getting out of this context, so many times the Roman Catholic Church, they did the whole service in Latin. You can still find that some places. But the people didn't speak Latin in England. So they have no clue what's being said and they have no clue what's being prayed. And they're saying prayer has to be in a known tongue, just like the whole service. People have to be able to hear what's being said. Let it encourage you to remember that God hears your prayers, Psalm 65, 2. And he uses them as means to his ends, James 1, 6, Revelation 8, 1 to 6. Also, notice that Jesus gave you a model to follow in the Lord's Prayer. That's in the Sermon on the Mount in the first few chapters 5 to 7 of Matthew. It's in Luke 2. When you struggle to pray, do not hesitate to pray the Lord's Prayer verbatim, for it may also be used as a prayer. That's the Westminster Larger Catechism 187. That's why we often recite the Lord's Prayer together. There's other reasons we've talked about we think it's okay to do something like that. But it's okay to actually use the Lord's Prayer to pray. That's not a Roman Catholic thing. It's also a model to help us build off of. But sometimes, I don't know about you, the only thing I got with my energy, my emotions, my ability to focus is to pray the Lord's Prayer. Teach us to pray, Jesus. Here you go, the Lord's Prayer. Prayer also is to be according to God's word and reverent in the manner in how we address God. Don't be casual and don't be careless. That doesn't mean don't be familiar. But don't be casual and careless. And using the majestic names and qualities that he has revealed about himself. So we must be careful to never use euphemisms such as holy cow or oh my goodness, things like that. According to the Westminster Larger Catechism 112 and 113. We are to pray with an awful apprehension of the majesty of God. Westminster Larger Catechism 185. Remember, even when we are allowed to call on God as Abba, as I think it was Derek Thomas pointed out, it's never said without Father. Abba, Father. It's always together. For extended teaching on prayer, see the Westminster Larger Catechism 178 to 196 and our sermon series through that on our Westminster Larger Catechism series on our sermon audio page. See the Shorter Catechism, 98 to 107, both of those larger and shorter catechisms, which include teaching through the Lord's Prayer. Both of them end with teaching through the Lord's Prayer. The last part of both catechisms is the last part of the Lord's Prayer. Also, I encourage you to look at Thomas Watson's The Lord's Prayer, his book, Teaching the Lord's Prayer, available in our library, and the Westminster Directories for Public and Family Worship contain instructions on prayer. I encourage you to remember to look to those for resources. Not the only resources, but remember we have a lot of those resources right here in our Westminster Standards and those other things that we do subscribe to, such as the directories for public and uh, family worship.
Okay, section four of the confession. I'm going to try to keep uh, cruising here. Thanks for your patience. I should always joke, uh, tighten your seat belts and hold on. <laughs> I, know, I know it's covering a lot pretty quickly. Thanks for your patience. Okay, section four. Prayer, middle of page 141. Prayer is to be made for things lawful and for all sorts of men living or that shall live hereafter, but not for the dead, nor for those of whom it may be known that they have sinned the sin unto death. So I just give you a quick, a quick explanation of this section. Prayer must be according to God's word. Thy will be done. Jesus says you don't have because you don't ask. Uh, sometimes the scriptures say you don't, a- you don't have because you don't ask correctly. He says if you ask in my will, according to my will, there's a qualification, right? It has to be thy will be done as his prayer is. Pray only for the living. This is against the Roman Catholic Church again. Do not pray for the dead. And actually, according to 1 John 5, 16, don't pray for apostates. Now, I'm not going to pretend I think I can necessarily know how to qualify that. Maybe one day we'll get there preaching and I'll have to wrestle with that. But there is a part of Scripture that says there's certain people not to pray for. But especially we don't pray for the dead. We don't pray to the dead. Last section, we don't pray for the dead. Pray for holiness. We're told in Luke 11, 13, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, pray for holiness. Pray for more of the Holy Spirit. Okay, section 5, bottom of page 141, section 5 of the confession. The reading of the scriptures with godly fear, the sound preachings and conscionable hearing of the word in obedience unto God with understanding, faith, and reverence, singing of psalms with grace in the heart, as also the due administration and worthy receiving of the sacraments instituted by Christ are all parts of the ordinary religious worship of God, beside religious oath, vows, solemn fastings, and thanksgivings upon special occasions, which are in their several times and seasons to be used in a holy and religious manner. Notice the use of the word religious. You're going to see that with Thomas Watson. We're talking about religious. People say, oh, Christianity is not a religion. Oh, yes, it is. It's the true religion. And James talks about the true religion. There is a religious aspect of this. It's not just plain old singing. Okay? Ordinary worship elements. That's the first thing they're talking about. What are ordinary things we should always expect to see in worship? The main elements of worship are preaching of the word, singing of psalms, and the proper use of the sacraments, which are only baptism in the Lord's Supper now. Now, there's going to be a chapter on the sacraments and then baptism in the Lord's Supper, so we won't get into the details yet. But that's what are the normal elements. Prayer also is understood to be a main element per section four above. Some people say the standards don't talk enough about the prayer. Well, yeah, they do. It's in the section on worship. These ordinary elements are said in the larger catechism 154 and shorter catechism 88 to be ways Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption, often referred to as means of grace. These main elements of worship, these ordinary elements of worship are Christ's ordinary ways of means of grace. That's how he feeds us every week in the Lord's Supper. Hey, do you guys need to eat regularly to survive? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you have to have regular meals, right? You tend to eat a lot of the same staple items, right? We have some variety, but it's the main thing. Worship, we go to that meal with the Lord every week. Do you want to experience more grace? Attend to its means in corporate worship. As well, notice your worship should be with godly fear, it says. Hey, Gabriel, 
I know it's Wednesday night, but I'd like you to sit still for mommy a little better, okay? Good boy. Uh, it should be with godly fear, conscionable hearing, reverence, top of page 142, with grace in the heart, and the holy, oh, excuse me, the worthy receiving of the sacraments. That's all from the confession. How we go about it needs to be reverent and respectful. You are to give complete, holy, wholehearted attentiveness to God in worship. For, quote, inattention is an insult. J.I. Packer, if you're not being attentive, paying attention to worship, you are insulting God. Thus, heed Richard Baxter's instructions to worshipers in the pews. This comes from our study this Lord's Day morning, last Lord's Day morning. Quote, you have work to do as well as the preaching and should all the time be as busy as he. We are not spectators in worship, beloved, and a lot of modern worship treats us that way, just as the Roman Catholic Church treats us as spectators. We're not spectators having something done to us or for us. We are participants participating in worship of God. I like what R.C. Sproul says next. He challenges us, quote, reverence. Excuse me, I'm losing my note here. This may be the most difficult. Reverence, he says, in worship. This may be the most difficult. We are among the most casual and disrespectful people who have inhabited the earth. That disrespect carries over even into our worship and prayer life. We tend to approach God as if he were our peer. That means our equal. We talk to him as if we were talking to our next door neighbor with no sense of awe, adoration, or reverence before him. You know, I love to hear my wife pray. She will usually only pray in Portuguese. She's still a little uh, humble about wanting to pray in English. She could do it. But the way she prays, the way she's been trained to pray is very reverent. It just starts praising God with all these titles and acknowledging his sovereignty. And that's how we should be approaching God in prayer. Uh, I won't ask her to give it as an example right now, but uh, it's a good example. See the Westminster Larger Catechism 116 to 121 and 160 on proper preparation for and participation in the Lord's Day Sabbath worship. More on this below. And by the way, when we get to Lord's Supper, there's a lot in our catechism about how to approach the Lord's Supper properly. Okay. Um, Lost my place here. Uh, Okay, tithing also is something. Uh, Tithing and discipline also are elements of regular worship as it's, quote, ministry and maintenance, Larger Catechism 108. By the way, I have two articles for you to read in the inserts about tithing. I also developed an article that I reference as a suggested reading because we had somebody arguing, we don't have to tithe. That's not something we have to do anymore. We don't have to give money to the church. We can do whatever we want. And so I developed an article for us to prove, no, Paul talks about a lot of this in Corinthians. Tithing is still part of the Christian church. Um, but I've given you one by R.C. Sproul and one by J.J. Lim, our brother who has been here from Singapore, about tithing to the Lord of our first fruits. See also the Assembly's Directory for Public Worship within our uh, collected Westminster Standards for more on worship. Now, we talked about, therefore, uh, regular worship elements. Uh, ordinary, but we have occasional worship elements also being discussed here in this section. There are times for corporate and individual oaths and vows, often seen as covenanting. Membership vows, officers have to take a vow before God and an oath before the people, swearing about what they're going to do and not do. That's biblical, uh, but it's not every week. It's occasional. 
Fasting and thanksgiving. By the way, look at our Westminster Directory for Public Worship of God. They give instructions about fasting and they give instructions about thanksgiving services, by the way. And notice that it does not give us any instructions about the liturgical calendar holy days of Christmas and Easter. They don't say anything about that stuff. But they do give us instruction on special occasions for Thanksgiving. Very biblical. Vows and oaths are important in membership. See the next chapter. They have a chapter on vows and oaths. By the way, besides membership in a church and beside officers in a church, can you think of another place? It's not in worship, uh, but can you think of another place that's biblical example of taking vows? Marriage, right. Yeah. It's not in a worship context. We wouldn't confuse marriage with worship. Uh, but there's still a place for taking vows and oaths. Sometimes in worship related to membership and officers. Or also baptism uh, for your children. Okay, section six. I'm going to try to roll through a little more so I give Mr. Renner some time next week. Uh, section six, chapter 21. Neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel either tied unto or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. But God is to be worshipped everywhere in spirit and truth, as in private families daily and in secret each one by himself. So more solemnly in the public assemblies, which are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God by his word or providence calleth thereunto. By the way, that last part of that section is in our bulletin every week. I didn't put it there, by the way. When I came here, it was already there. (laughs) We're not to ignore worship publicly called when it's called on the Sabbath day. Okay, Uh, More on that in a moment. So bottom of page 142. We are now the spiritual temple and Jesus, our high priest, takes us into the true holy of holies in God's presence in heaven before the holy angels. Quote, God is to be worshiped everywhere, it says. And that, number one, in private families daily, which is why we so emphasize family worship. And again, they have a directory for family worship. See also, oh, I mentioned that in the Confession of Faith. Uh, Section two, in secret, private devotions. And three, more solemnly, in the public assemblies, which is the main thing we're focusing on. Please soberly heed the following clause of the confession here regarding public assemblies, which are not, quote, are not carelessly or willfully to be neglected or forsaken when God, by his word or providence, calleth thereunto. Again, see Hebrews 10.25. Don't neglect the public assembly of worship as is the, as is the habit of some. And sometimes that could just be related to part of the day. Thus, this clause is in the top right of our bulletin under the evening service note. We have an evening service. You as members of Christ's church are expected to assemble when the elders call you to worship God together on the Christian Sabbath. We have morning and evening worship service on the Lord's Day for, quote, the whole day, our confession says, the whole day is to be given to worship. And we sang Psalm 92, verse 2, which is called the Psalm for the Sabbath. And it references morning and evening sacrifices. You have a responsibility to use your six days like mature men and women so as not to jeopardize your ability to attend Sabbath worship morning and evening. Listen to Mr. Renner's testimony when he said, I work six days a week. I work 10 hours a day. I can't be here for the evening service. Be ready for uh, Pastor Bell's wife, I believe it was, and her, her, her question to him about that. As well, all church events and activities throughout the week should be 
looking at and geared towards Sabbath worship. See Dr. Pruto's diagram attached. If you look back with me real briefly to the attachment by Dr. Pruto about Sabbath worship, you'll see a circle. It's, uh, it says page 49 at the bottom. If you can look with me past my notes, you'll see a circle. This, by the way, is on our bulletin in our fireside room. It's been there for years. This is from my care and administration from the church class. Notice there's all these arrows pointing to the circle. Evangelism, session, counseling, VBS, Sabbath school, synod meetings, session work, youth meetings, church discipline, family conferences, women's society, all these things. But what is their purpose? They're pointing to the circle. Leviticus 26, verse 2, Psalm 84, verse 10, Psalm 87, verse 2, Sabbath worship. Everything about church is pointing us to the regular ritual of weekly Sabbath worship, as has always been the case for God's people, Old and New Testament. It's all about Sabbath worship. So we don't require anybody to attend anything else. We emphasize we require Sabbath worship. We strongly encourage, and we think we should see people wanting to come to other things if they can. Some things can hinder that. Distance, work, different things. But Sabbath worship is what it's all about. That is required by God. Okay, And everything else we might do has to be pointing toward that. Okay, So if we're going to go pick up kids for a Sabbath school... We want to see them in Sabbath worship, or what's the point? Not God's point. Everyone needs to be encouraged and taught to come worship God in the assembly. Okay? Um, where did I leave off? I lost my place here. <laughs> uh, uh, 21, section 6, was it? Uh, Psalm 92, 2, I was talking about. You have a responsibility. Da, 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 da. You should be looking. Page 143. Okay. If you, top of page 143. If you don't give such attention to your weak, you are acting like spoiled children who do not appreciate your heavenly father. A loving child delights in a day to honor and delight in his father. Isaiah 58, 13 to 14 that we opened with, which Thomas Watson closes his section on the fourth commandment with by details. By the way, when it's my birthday, my wife is really happy to show me attention on my birthday and spend time with me. In fact, Fernanda, if I didn't hang out with you on my birthday, do you think you'd be offended? Kids, they... I. I don't think you're faking it. Like, you like to be there on my birthday and celebrate, just like I do for you guys, right? We don't want to be with our father on his, his day every week, our holy father, all day, coming back to worship, spend time with him all the time. He's our father. We delight in him. We delight in the Sabbath, Isaiah 58, 13 and 14. It says if you delight in the Sabbath, that means you'll delight in him. The Lord's day is whose day again? The Lord's day, and not just the Lord's morning. By the way, we have a lot of articles on our website under the Lord's Day about all these different issues, but including the evening service. And one, you know, something they point out is that it's not called the Lord's morning. It's called the Lord's day. Okay. Obedience is not legalism, but love. You spend time with those whom you love devotedly. Do we love the Lord? Don't we delight to spend time with our Lord on his day? Remember what I said on Sabbath class, the Satan's going to fight us. He's always going to make it difficult. And the pastor's family, I think, always gets hits the worst, even when we're better prepared than some weeks. I'm not saying there won't be a battle. We saw that in our study on the Lord's Day morning. There's going to be a battle, but we should want to go there. We should delight to go there. We would be willing to go through the Valley of Baca to get there. 
Psalm 84. Review that, uh, review that devotion on our website that highlights a Filipino woman in a picture given to us years ago by Pastor Burley. Burley. And, the, and the pastor wrote, this Bradley. woman, Bradley, this, per, this woman brings her children, because she can't bring all of them, four of them, for four to six hours walking there and back to get on a car to go to worship and not go to the Catholic church. They said, how can you do that? And her, father, her husband doesn't join them. How can you go through all that? Because I need to get my children, my family, before the word of God. Okay, section seven. As it is the law of nature that in general, a due proportion of time be set apart for the worship of God, so in his word, by a positive moral and perpetual commandment, binding all men in all ages, he hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath to be holy unto him, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in Scripture is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. Okay, I'd like to end there. Amen. Well, <laughs> yeah, I got to get home, brother. Yeah, but actually, I see the time. I want to stop and not go too long. But also, this is a good place to stop because we're transitioning to specifically talk about the Sabbath. And there's only two sections left. This is the change of subject, the focus on the Sabbath, the Lord's Day. So this is a great place to stop. And then, Mr. Renner, if you don't mind, I think I can be pretty quick about this, uh, including Thomas Watson's quotes about the Sabbath. So, Mr. Renner, if you can take it from, I'll hand it off to you after I finish this section, section 7 and 8. We'll complete the chapter next week, and then Mr. Renner will give us his testimony about honoring the Christian Sabbath, the sacrifice that has been involved when he became a Christian, the, the, having, the giving himself to the evening services when that was difficult. Some interesting testimony we'll hear about Mrs. Renner. Come back for that. <laughs> if you will share it, I think it's okay. Uh, and then how th- you wouldn't believe it because of the way she is now. But we're going to have the close of our chapter next week just the last two sections on the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath, and Mr. Renner's testimony. And then the following two weeks, uh, I'll teach about the regular principle of worship and a cappella psalmody. And I have already given you that insert. So if you can please bring your notes back. I'm not going to have more handouts. We'll continue with this and also the inserts for the rest of this study. Okay? Thanks for your patience. And uh, let's close in prayer. O Lord, you are worthy to be praised. You alone are to be worthy to be praised. Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Triune God, Blessed Trinity. You are worthy to be praised only how you desire to be praised and nothing else is acceptable. And we recognize that there has been a change with some things in the coming of Christ, the reality that has done away with the circumstantial, uh, excuse me, the ceremonial system of the Old Testament. We do pray that you would bless us as we come to you on this Sabbath day, excited to worship you, striking the strings of the instrument of our hearts, worshiping you in spirit and truth as the Father seeks through the mediation of Jesus Christ, our high priest, after the order of Melchizedek and the intercession of the Holy Spirit for us in our presence on earth as we assemble as your people, the Kahal, the Ecclesia, and you worship, your, you have us worship you with your presence in us, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to keep practicing.
for our homecoming in heaven when we will gather with the elders around the throne and around the Lamb. We pray, Lord, that you cause this to be our great desire. And we ask your blessing on us to be home safely. And we thank you for this study. In Jesus' name, and all your people said, Amen. Amen.